You're listening to High Temperature Times, a podcast for talking all things refractory. My name is Griffin Patterson, and I'm an application specialist with Harbison Walker International. As a lifelong learner, I'm excited to dive deep into the world's oldest industry with you. I'll be bringing in the best and the brightest in the business to talk knowledge, application, and the hottest new stuff in the refractory world. Thanks for joining us in this inaugural episode of the newest podcast brought to you by Harbison Walker International. We hope to bring new information and fun ideas to people within our own workforce, customers who might be familiar with our name, and well, just anyone who actually gives a hoot about the refractory industry. I'd like to start off these shows by taking questions from our audience about refractories, but given this is our first podcast, I'm not surprised to hear that there are no questions for us. So instead, I'm going to pull from a list of commonly asked questions that we see. In the future, however, if you're interested in submitting a question to the show, shoot us an email at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com and use the subject line podcast so we know that it's for the show. In the meantime, we have a question that was asked a few weeks back from a Ron Krupp asking, can any of your lower density insulating bricks be formed with hand tools? The easy answer here is yes. Insulating bricks, sometimes referred to as soft brick, is workable enough to cut using a simple hacksaw. However, the higher in temperature rating you go, the more dense and thus difficult it will be to cut and form. For example, a 2300 degree rated brick will be really easy to cut using a simple saw, sandpaper, or whatever you have. But if you go up to like the 3000 degree rated ones, it will be significantly more difficult as they're almost twice as dense. Point of note, however, is that cutting these bricks is a very dusty affair. So be sure to wear your proper PPE when you cut. With that wrapped up, let's get on to the real meat of the topic. For our very first episode of High Temperature Times, HTT for short, I'm bringing in Larry Morley to talk alternative fuels. Thanks for joining us, Larry. Hey, thanks for having me, Griffin. So before we get into what the hell alternative fuels are, uh, tell me about you and your role at HWI. Uh, my role at HWI, I am the applications manager for cement and lime or minerals processing. Um, I've been in the cement and lime business, I guess, the industries for uh, probably 20 plus years at this point. Been around a while, worked in a cement plant. I was a production manager for some time and uh, got catapulted into the fun and fantastic world of refractories. So you've been doing this for uh, since I was a little baby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yes, unfortunately, yes. I guess from my <laughs> unfortunately, you're the you're the the renowned expert now. Uh, <laughs> That's why we got you here. Well, years in the business doesn't make me an expert, I guess. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> okay, so what are these alternative fuels that people keep harping on about? I mean, what are traditional fuels even? Okay. Good point. Good question. Uh, traditional fuels um, in the cement and lime business. Uh, refer to coal, petroleum, coke, but primarily coal. So fossil fuels is what we're talking about here. Those are the traditional fuels. And in some cases, depending on cost, um, natural gas. Uh, so the idea is that uh, the cement and lime business are very energy intensive processes uh, using a lot, of, uh, a lot of those fuels. So the idea of alternate fuels is to try and reduce fossil fuel usage. Okay. And so what are these alternative fuels then? Well, alternative fuels um, can be anything really with a BTU value that can be substitution, be substitutions for the fossil fuels. So uh, in a lot of cases, it's tires, used spent tires, whether they're whole tires or shredded tires or chunked up tires. Um, but typically they come in two forms, solids and uh, liquids. Solids type would be tires, wood, um, building components. So if you take a, an old building, you demolish it. 
you're left over with uh, a pile of rubble. The idea is to take that metal out of that rubble and then use whatever's left over for, for a fuel. Uh, that could mean there's some wood in there. There could be some vinyl flooring, perhaps some shingles, uh, that type of thing. Um, it sounds like a lot cars. of junk. Yeah, that's kind of what it boils down to. Uh, similar to cars, if you take all of the metal out of a car, you're left with things like seats and some vinyls and that type of thing. Grind that all up into a bit of a fluff and, uh, and you get what's called car fluff. So that's another fuel. Um, there are lots of, uh, lots of other solids like rice husks, uh, peanut shells, bark from trees, that type of stuff. So really anything that has a BT, BTU value is being discovered and sort of experienced with in, in the cement lime industry. When it comes to, to um, liquids, you're looking at spent solvents, um, those types of things. So quite literally everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite literally everything. And really what drives uh, which type of solid fuel or which type of alternate fuel that you're, you're going to be using, you're experiencing, um, comes down to where you are located geographically. What's close by? What can I depend on that's consistent in, not only in quality, but consistent in, in volume? So you want to have a, a supply that's consistent uh, in two aspects, quality and in, uh, in volume. Now, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but is, is consistency what we normally see with these alternative fuels or is there often a change? Well, consistency is what you what what, are, what users target. Uh, if they can get consistency and quality and volume, that's what they, what they want to be, even if it's a low volume. Um, but the idea to maintain a consistent and smooth operation in a cement, pan, cement plant is to have consistent fuels. So that's kind of what you're after. Okay. So why why do alternative fuels always come up in the cement industry, the cement and lime industry? I mean, it sounds like it can be used pretty much anywhere that you need heat. So why why is the cement industry special in this regard? That's a really great question. The uh, the idea of the cement plant for alternative fuels is that uh, cement plants are the perfect incinerator. Um, every, all of the ash, all of the residue left over. Uh, from the combustion of the fuels goes into the clinker, which happens to be a byproduct of the cement manufacturing process. So everything that goes uh, comes out in ash goes into the cement. Whereas with an incinerator, you've got ash and residue left over to deal with. But everything literally is consumed and used in the cement making process, which makes you know, it perfect. That's a really good point because um, my background is uh, I do power generation, and mm -hmm. if you're looking at something like like waste waste to energy things, all that fly ash that comes out that all that always goes to the cement industry anyways. That's right. It's so a raw material, yeah. Cut out the middleman, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No cement plants they operate at uh, uh, right around fourteen fifty Celsius. I'm I don't I'm not very good at conversions for front or for Fahrenheit right off the top of my head, but it's about fourteen fifty. Uh, like Canadians. So, <laughs> so you've got uh, you've got some real high temperatures and no residue. I mean, it's it's a perfect incinerator. So, like, I'm just thinking. I, I know that that when you're using these alternative fuels, there's a there's a significant difference in ash levels. Like some some alternative fuels are very ashing, whereas other ones are less. Do those make different cements? I mean, what's the difference between a co-processed cement that uses alternative fuels versus a traditional cement that doesn't? Right. That's a good question. So um, cement plants tend to target a certain C3S content in clinker. A um, bunch of different components go into making, to compromising and bringing that, um, that C3S level. Uh, what they will do is alter 
some of the other ingredients that are uh, put into the raw material to balance it with the ash brings in. Does that make sense? So uh, C C3S, and this is taking me way back to my days as an academic. That's a calcium silicate. Tricalcium silicate, yeah. Okay, and, and cement is made of these different levels of calcium silicates and alumina silicates, correct? That's correct, yeah, yeah. Okay, so C3S is sort of their their driver for standard. Yeah, that's where that's where uh, cement gets its strength from. Cool, concrete. oh, okay. Concrete okay. gets its strength from. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, so, I mean, we were, we were talking about quite literally junk, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're, you're about the alternative fuels. Um, it, it, it sounds like there's really a lot of things going on in this kiln. And the, the traditional cement that uses traditional fuels, you have just your standard level of things to worry about. But as soon as you throw those alternative fuels in, um, there's a whole lot more chemically going on. Right, so yeah. what, what, what does that do to the kiln and the, let's get right to it, right? The refractories there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of these bad actors, the chlorides and the sulfides can really, really attack, um, the refractory and break down the parts and the materials that hold the refractory together and wear it out. Um, you, uh, just as an example, someone may, may be getting one year service life in one area of their kiln. They start to introduce more and more alternate fuels uh, and then they see that service life maybe cut in half. So they start to rethink and we start to rethink um, how can we improve that? How can we make that better for a couple of reasons? One is the market is driving the refractory world to uh, bring new things to the marketplace to help solve operational issues and, and also to help get uh, improve service life. So from a refractory point of view, um, you start to think about breakdown, quicker breakdown, shorter service life. From an operational point of view, if I'm a cement operator um, and I'm starting to see a lot more buildup, for instance, inside my, my vessels, inside the, the things that make up the cement process line, the pyro processing line, um, they can be real operational issues where airflow might be restricted and you can't get up to the uh, normal operating uh, levels that you would. So those types of things can really play havoc on uh, uh, both on your your uh production budget as well as your financial budget if you're a cement plant operator so so on as one element of these alternative fuels you mentioned it's build up right what what is this build up that you speak of is it's not it, it's not commonly happening without alternative fuels or it's happening more with alternative fuels and what is it yeah it happens more with alternative fuels uh it can it, it's a lot of chlorides and sulfites, sulfides that come in with alternate fuels that are introduced into the system. These things have a low melting point, so they, they tend to form it. They come in as a solid, they form a gas at temperature, and then they condense somewhere else in the system. Um, and it's just a cycle that keeps keeps going on. And over time, it builds up and builds up and builds up until a point where it just starts to choke things off. So not only do you have like enhanced refractory wear that we're talking about, but you also have operational issues that may lead to increased downtime. So, so the, the, the cement kiln operators have two things to look at. How do they use the alternative fuels while maintaining good operation with low, with low downtime? And also what, what do they have to worry about when it comes to the refractories? Yeah. And that's a good point. And that's, it's a real balancing act when it comes to that. They, they quite often cement plant operators will have key performance indicators that target uh, an elevated level of alternate fuel usage. At the same time, they know that elevated uh, alternate fuel usage can impact their, their production. Uh, so they have to kind of walk a fine line and what's that balancing point where I can use the most alternate fuels and still maintain the maximum production that I could get. 
and I think I'm actually putting this together a little bit in the back of my mind that some of the buildup is actually the refractory is playing a role in that. And with traditional refractories using the, the cement industry, the, the the chemical wear, the refractories are actually playing its own part in in this buildup. So, am, am I correct in that? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we we have to reanalyze the the refractories in order to reduce that 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 leg of the buildup side. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what, what are we talking about here? So what we tend to do for refractory world, um, we tend to bring things like silicon carbide, um, zirconia, those types of additives to a refractory that uh, will help reduce or eliminate buildups and um, alkali penetration into the refractories. So why why still why silicon carbide? Silicon carbide forms forms a, when it's in oxidizing environment forms a, a glassy phase on the on the surface of the refractory. So what it does that it doesn't allow the 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 uh, the bad actors I would say to penetrate into the refractory and that prevents buildup and it also prevents alkali attack from breaking the refractory down. So real quick for for us plebs here we're we're, we're talking about introducing silicon carbide. What was used prior to this in the traditional sense? It would have been a standard 60%, for instance, uh, 60% alumina refractory, either cast or gummed into place. So, uh, okay. So it's a, it's a big step for the refractory world when, when the yeah, materials were, were introduced. That's definitely a big, a big change. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of my more academic questions about silicon carbide, because I, I, I was actually previously aware of silicon carbide being used in the, in the modern world from all the work you've done for the company. Um, but it was sort of one of those things that I'm I'm used to silicon carbide as like a pure silicon carbide mix, right? Like a 80%, 90%, 100% silicon carbide. Is that necessary in the cement industry to form that that glassy phase, or can you use a lower silicon carbide percentage percentage and still get that effect? Um, there's a number of different uh, different ways, both in the quality of the silicon carbide as well as the amount of the silicon carbide that's introduced into a into a refractory. So when you're uh, as refractory producers, we tend to come up with a wide range of both quality and quantity of silicon carbide just for price differences. So that our customers have different, different ideas or different um, sort of options from a pricing point of view, from a technical point of view, the more pure and the more of it, probably the better off you're going to be depending on what the actual application area is. But uh, from a, from a refractory uh, producer point of view, we offer a variety of both quality and quantity. So when it comes to silicon carbide, it's really the harder you're running it, the more, the higher grade you need in a general uh, sense. Yeah, I, that, I think as a rule of thumb, that's probably not a bad statement. There are some schools of thought that would say more silicon carbide doesn't necessarily mean better. Uh, from a refractory point of view, there's always that cost performance balance that you have to walk. Um, so somewhere maybe 30% is 30% silicon carbide is probably a pretty good target okay. depending on the application. So I, and again, with, with my limited background, there are, there are other classes of refractory that are, that are sometimes used when we're talking alternative fuels, or is it just silicon carbide? Um, we use a fair bit of uh, zirconia as well. Uh, zirconia okay. is basically just inert. It doesn't react to the alkalis. Uh, and the sulfates that are in that are in the airstream or the process environment. So uh, it just brings a little. The end result's the same. It just goes about it a little bit different. Okay. So I mean, it, it is it is it more of a A or B, or are they are they zoned like like in different areas with certain areas being fa- being more favorable with silicon carbide, certain areas being more favorable to zirconia. 
Yeah, I mentioned earlier that um, silicon carbide needs to have oxygen in the environment. It can't be in reducing conditions. Uh, so if, if there's a, a chance that you might be in reducing conditions, then zirconia is probably a better option. Um, especially with, depending if you're introducing, uh, say, large pieces of alternate fuels, I'll, I'll give you an example, whole tires, for instance, or large chunks of tires, you may get some localized reducing conditions. In that case, you want to consider a zirconia-based um, uh, refractory rather than a silicon carbide. Yeah. So I, and, and again, this is, this is a bit of my background here that I'm, I'm familiar with. Silicon carbide, what's happening in oxidizing conditions, the silica actually oxidizes into a silicon silica or a, the silicon in silicon carbide oxidizes into a silica glass right exactly so if you don't re, if you're reducing it then you're not oxidizing it into that silica glass exactly okay see i i am smart yeah i might just be some, some lowly host but i i do have no. some semblance of brains behind me so so go ahead and go ahead and throw in some of some of these product pitches here because this is a Harbison Walker International podcast. Uh, I guess we might as well talk about it. What what are we talking about when we're when we're saying the silicon carbide refractories, the zirconia refractories that we're that are often talking about in the cement industry? Yeah. So from Harbison Walker product point of view, all of our Thor products, whether it's a Thor thirty, Thor sixty, Thor ACS castable, they all pass the FLS cup test, which means they're alkali resistant. Um, they also have anti-buildup. Um, they've been engineered and designed to help reduce buildup uh, from a monolithic point of view. So that, those are our go-to products for any cement plant or lime plant that happens to be using um, alternate fuels. They also bring a lot of some great abrasion resistance, which is always a concern in, in minerals processing. Um, from a, from a uh, shaped refractory point of view or brick point of view, we just released our new product line, uh, Thorbide family. So we have three products uh, in that family that are that 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 uh, can be made into bricks: uh, Thorbide HR, Thorbide XR, and Thorbide UR. Again, varying levels of silicon carbide content, all with individual um, application areas within the minerals processing um, industries. But uh, great problem-solving products. So those two, I'll I'll leave you with those: Th the Thor family of monolithics and Thor by family of, uh, of bricks. Yeah, real quick. I mean, I, nomenclature, when it comes to HWI, nomenclature has always been one of our favorite things to laugh at because of how difficult it is. You said the, H, the HRXR, I think I might have missed those. What, you what, are. What, what, what are those? Okay. A, little bit, a little bit more on that. Thor by HR is high resistance. Uh, Thor by XR is extra resistant. And UR is ult ultimate resistance. And here we're talking about resistance to alkali. Alkalize, abrasion, uh, and buildup. So that's kind of why we left it open like that, because it is resistance. Okay. They're resistant, resistant to all those things. Resistant to tough stuff. Everything. Alternate fuels. <laughs> resistant to alternate fuels. Resistant to alternate fuel. Look at that. Bring that right around, right around to, the, to, the, to the name of the, of the uh, podcast. So uh, aside from, from uh, just picking the best refractory the the refractory that's going to bet that's going to help you both on the the cost of your total lining and your, your lifetime and it's going to resist the the alternate fuels that you're you're thinking about bringing in what else um can cement manufacturers do in order to uh to deal with this this future of alternative fuels yeah that's a good question um from where i sit um, i think that it's important that our cement manufacturers uh, partner with refractory suppliers. 
Uh, it, you, you can't switch to alternate fuels overnight. It doesn't happen that way. It takes a fair bit of time. There's usually some some capital uh, investment involved in getting handling systems in place. So the sooner that you get your refractory suppliers um, involved, uh, at least understanding which direction you're going, the better off to transition from traditional fuels to, to the use of maybe 30% or 25% alternate fuel substitution is going to be. Uh, refractory suppliers teaming up with uh, cement manufacturers is really where I think um, uh, a lot of problems can be solved early in the game. The sooner you have those discussions, the sooner that uh, you get you get back up and running and uh, making good quality cement. Now, do you just mean teaming up in the sense of of having that discussion early, or are you suggesting something more like what what the steel industry has, where it actually has refractory specialists, like like maybe even on site, but you know on hand, like a, like a guru that's in regular communication. Um, is that where you see the market going in this sense? Uh, probably a little bit of both. Once a cement plant is, has uh, taken the decision to to go down the path of alternate fuels, they have legislation and those types of things to deal with locally. Uh, once you get over those hurdles, you really want to you want to involve um, all all people that are going to help keeping your plant up and running uh, nice and smoothly. From a uh, supplier point of view, we, we want to be involved every step of the way, whether it's helping design raw mix, identifying refractory issues coming down the pipe. Um, those types of things uh, can really smooth out uh, a cement plant operation down the road. So it really is a partnership and the more discussion around the, the idea of alternate fuels, both from a manufacturing point of view and a supplier point of view, um, will go a long way in, in uh, smoothing out that transition. Great. Um, well, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to educate me and our audience about how this industry has developed since uh, since the Romans added volcanic rock to lime. If you want to learn more about the cement and lime industry, please reach out at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. And if you're as excited as I am for the next issue of High Temperature Times, be sure to subscribe to, the, to our show on your preferred listening medium, be it iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks for listening. <laughs>